Pardon us, Lord God Almighty, from all our sins, and through gratitude to you for forgiveness, give us the will to do good works. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. There were actually some great margin comments today. Kant, in holiness, the law ceases to be a command for us. That's the gospel use of the law. That's brilliant. And then there's one of, oh, the language that God hears best is the silent language of love, which is precisely where we're trying to get. Uh, Let's see, there should be two sign-in sheets coming around, and then Ghana and Westfield House. That'll come around as well. Who wants to, uh, you know, I'm a bit of a betting man. Who wants to take a guess at how many words the gospel was for today? Because I know. What do you think? Nope, more than that. He said 672, more than that. Ah, you're very close. I think it was 781. And you'll remember that vicars have a limit on, on the number of words in their sermon. And here's what's so funny. I mean, are there any vicars here? I don't think Boyle's up here yet. Even if he was, I'd still talk about him. Um, we tell them 800 words, and here's what they do. Pastor, will you read my sermon? And it's, you know, it's like, they think, it's like the kids in basketball. They think I just started playing yesterday. It's like they just think, you know, I wrote my first sermon yesterday and I have no idea what a word count looks like. All you have to do is skim it and you realize they're at about 1,300 words. Now, it's not like they're at 804. They're at 1307, okay? So here's what's fascinating is the vicars think we're off the wall for telling them 800 words. Well, Jesus had a sermon today and it was only 786. And frankly, I think Jesus, Jesus would get more words than the vicars. Um, that was a joke. You can all laugh. You can all tell them later I was banging on them. Whatever. <laughs> um, all right. Do you have one? Take this in case you have to call doctrinal review later. Here's the thing. Start at point number one and go through it for me again, would you? I was just going to say, for those of you who are keeping score at home, I promise we won't start at point one, but I do want to make one other point. Keeping score at home is completely in the way of the law. So think about that as you drive home. <laughs> Anything that's quantitative is completely in the way of the law. So those of you who are saying, oh, I hope he doesn't start at point one. If I wasn't so charitable, I would. Um, yes, exactly. Completely in the point. The number of words in a sermon is completely in the way of the law. And vicars are under the law. Uh, unless they become holy, as Kant says, and then they can have it in the way of gift, but they're not quite there yet. So, yeah, everything for them is completely in the way of the law. Let's see. Any, uh, any questions from last week? How's everyone feeling? Everyone okay? It's always nice to see the sun out. It's like, uh, you know, a light, a light snow. Not the kind of snow that turns gray before it hits the ground, but a very light snow is sometimes... Quite refreshing. Same thing with a nice, a nice rain over the summer or in the spring. It's quite refreshing. Same thing with waking up in February and having the sun out at 6.30. That's quite refreshing. Hey. All right. Well, I, I would like to answer one question that came up last week. It came up near the end. Jonathan Litvin, I don't know if he's here yet, um, but we'll answer it anyways. The question was, is there... Is there a way to distinguish between what the Christian does? Because we've talked a lot about uh, the Christian life. These are just fruits of the Christian life. You've been redeemed. Jesus is on you and in you. And so then you live a specific way. You have a specific kind of life. 
And he asked a very good question about the distinction between the life that's lived or the expression of the Christian life and really what's happened inside of you. Okay? So his question was, how does the Lord getting inside of you change you in such a way that you begin to live this, kind of, this specific life? Or, or does he do that? And I want to make it very clear uh, that all of this talk about new life and new creation and the way you live is, is not in the way of quantity. This is not a quantitative thing. It's not as though you say... I've done X, Y, and Z, so I, so I know now I'm on the right path, and if I could only do a little bit more, all would be well. That's not what we're talking about. I'm trying to give you specific examples of the Christian life, chief of which I believe uh, is love. And, and someone also asked, this is helpful, what does this have to do with beauty? Okay. To go all the way back to the very first week, you remember that Aquinas told us that God is beauty. Okay? So when God gets inside of you, or when he gets on you, something beautiful has taken up residence in you, which then changes the way that you live and makes your life something extraordinarily beautiful. So to get to Litvin's question, it's not an either-or, but it really is a both-and. What drives the verbs is always the Lord. It's nothing quantitative. It's all about Jesus. And we said this a few weeks back. The great tragedy is all of our sentences usually begin with, I think, or I feel, or I want, or I believe. When you should really begin to begin your, you should really begin to begin your sentences with, Jesus says, Jesus thinks, Jesus does, Jesus believes. That way, if it goes wrong, it's on Jesus. Betty thinks I'm joking. I'm very serious. Just make sure you're accurately uh, uh, portraying who Jesus is and what he wants and what he does and what he says. But if you actually, if your life is centered around the Eucharist and the person of Christ himself, that transforms even the way you speak. And I don't mean you don't go out anymore and say, I hate you. That's not, that we shouldn't even, we shouldn't even have to think about that. Sadly, we do. But it should change even the way you look at the verbs. It's not you, it's Jesus. And so what happens is Jesus takes up residence inside of you, and all this, uh, exp- this expression of the Christian life is all done by Jesus. You know in Jesus there is no distinction between what he does and who he is. There's no distinction. He is love, so he loves He is mercy, so he's merciful. He is light, so he brings light. He is not wrath, so he doesn't want to be wrathful. The great collect of the... uh, This is the best collect of the church here is today. I've got to look at it first so I don't screw it up. O God, whose glory it is always to have mercy... There's nothing inside of him, in his being, in who he is, that desires to be wrathful. And when he takes up residence inside of you, frankly, the same should apply to you. So to Jonathan's question, I would say, it's all about Jesus inside of you, and yes, that does change you, because it's no longer you who live, but as St. Paul says, it's Christ who lives in me. So all all the expressions of the Christian life, all the good works you could ever imagine, 
are all done by Jesus in and through you. Which is why I said last week, Jesus has always been a Lutheran. Because he always works by means. It's extraordinary for him to work outside of means. And you can't base anything, any, you can't base any part of the Christian life on the Lord working outside of means. He always works by means. And guess what? You're one of his means. Okay? So, point one. No, I'm kidding. Not point one. Come on, lighten up a little. Let's have some fun. Come on now. Uh, I could tell jokes, but, you know, I've told all those already. Plus, Abby doesn't like that. Um, Look at point five. Page two. You and the Lord are one and the same. And we can retrace all the mystical union talk that we've done throughout the past three or four weeks, but frankly, you know all of that. Um, It shouldn't be a surprise to you anymore. But all you need to remember is that you and Jesus, in a concrete, tangible way, are one in the same. When people see you, they see Christ. At least they should. And if they don't, you should ask yourself, are Jesus and I really one in the same? Which then should lead you to say, yes, we are, and here's now how I live as Christ lives in and through me. So you and the Lord are one and the same. What goes for Jesus, or better, what defines Jesus, who Jesus is, now also goes for you. Next page. And one of the most beautiful ways in which we've come to know Jesus is as love. He doesn't merely love you, and he doesn't merely have love, but he actually is love incarnate. Love took on flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary so that he might love you in such a way as to catch you up in love itself. He's married to you. It's as though it's, it's, it's like when you're uh, dating and engaged and then you finally get married. There is a change in your love. Because it's no longer two people who love each other. It's two people who will become one who love each other in such a way uh, that it's an icon of the gospel. So Jesus and you are one and the same. And we know him chiefly then by love, which means... You should know yourself chiefly by love. And we had the Luther quote there, and we read that a couple weeks back with the example of the leper. If you look down where it says, as Psalm 81 says, midway through that that citation there, I have said, you are gods and children altogether of the highest of the high, but through love we become like the poorest of the poor. According to faith, we need nothing and yet have complete abundance, Through faith, we receive goods from above from God, but through love, we release them from below to our neighbor. Just as God, according to his deity, needed nothing, but in his humanity served everyone who needed him. That's why the greatest prayer uh, in all of the liturgy, or at least one of the greatest, is the post-communion collect. Strengthen us in true faith toward thee and in fervent love toward one another. The Christian life is lived on two planes. You and the Lord, 
and you and your neighbor. And the way that you live with your neighbor is chiefly defined by love. Which is why, point seven, if you look there, love then defines each and every one of our relationships. And this is right out of the scriptures. This is the way the Lord set it up. It it defines your relationship with God and neighbor. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And it also defines your relationship with fellow Christians. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And it even then defines your relationship with your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies. From Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, which, as you know, primarily is gospel. The Lord's not out to get you in the Sermon on the Mount. But he's out. the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus. The Beatitudes are Jesus. Blessed is the poor in spirit. Who's the one poor in spirit? Jesus is poor in spirit. But because they're Jesus, they also are you. Because you and Jesus are one and the same. Okay? So love is the defining characteristic. And that should, as point eight said, that should come as great joy at this time in our life together. If you ask around, I would guess one of the great fears about going over to a bigger space is that you'll walk in the first day and it'll look empty. Well, there might be some buzz the first day. So maybe you go three or four weeks in and eventually the place doesn't grow and there are bills to pay and seats may be empty and you realize you've got a message that you want to share with people and you thought that this would be the key, going over there, bigger space, new chances for ministry, so on and so forth, and it just doesn't happen. However, the Lord has his own plan to grow the church. And I would propose to you that that will happen chiefly by showing love. We shouldn't be afraid, one, because fear is a sin. You shouldn't be afraid to go across the street, but we should see this as an extraordinarily great opportunity to show the love of Christ and in a very real way grow the church for years to come. And I don't mean, I don't mean cheesy church growth. I don't mean you go to someone's door and say, if you were to die today, where would you go? Okay? I don't mean uh, you go to someone's house and say, do you know about the resurrection of Christ? I can provide all the data. It was a real event that actually happened. Now figure it out. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is addressing the needs of real people in real time. And the needs of people today, if you flip over, the needs of people today, specifically given this postmodern culture, are not that they're questioning the validity of Scripture, or not that they're questioning whether or not the resurrection of Jesus was an actual historical event. But what they want is to no longer be lonely and no longer be unloved. Postmodernism is not, is not about, uh, it's not about being rational. And if you haven't figured it out, the church isn't rational. It took me a year to figure that out. I still haven't quite figured it out. Nelson hasn't figured it out, but it's always great joy for me to say, well, he's young. Uh, <laughs> because two months ago, I thought the same thing he did. 
And in two months, he'll finally figure out that people aren't rational. And frankly, that's okay because none of postmodernism is rational. What it's about is people wanting to belong to something. And even more than that, people wanting to belong to something that is ancient, that has some history, that wasn't made up yesterday, and that can deliver the goods in a concrete, tangible way. I'll give you an example, and I probably have used this here before. Every Easter Sunday, the parish I grew up in, 21 years I was a member there, the, one of the associate pastors would always preach the sunrise service. And it was actually a very nice service because the church went from being liturgical to non-liturgical in about 10 years. But on Easter Sunday, it was so funny, on Easter Sunday they thought we should probably go back to something liturgical, which is very strange. But the strangest part was that come time for the creed, he would have rewritten the creed to whatever he thought should be expressed that Sunday. Now, I didn't quite get this at 12, 13, 14 years old. I thought it was weird, but I couldn't figure out why. But if you look at that, not only is it utterly prideful to think that you can sit in your study on a Saturday before Easter and write something that's better than what's been confessed for 2,000 years, but it also is very anti-postmodern. They don't want what you wrote in your office on Saturday. They want what's been confessed for 2,000 years so they can say, the church is bigger than me, and the church is bigger than you, and the church is frankly bigger than St. John, and it's bigger than the Missouri Synod. The church is huge. And what they want is something that goes back 2,000 years and that spans a wide variety of people. The great thing about the liturgy that you don't have in other forms of worship, if that's what you want to call it, is that on, every, on any given Sunday, people are speaking the same words and really singing to the same tunes all throughout the world. There are churches at this very moment who are saying, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy, Lord, have mercy. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty. And that's very appealing but in order for us to get them to that point where they say, yeah, I want to not only be part of this community, but I want to be a part of this community because you confess the liturgy, what we first have to do is show them that they are actually loved. That they are actually loved. Pastor Bruzik said it in today's sermon. Two, people, or two things that people fear most are being lonely and being unloved. So then, what do people need most? Number one here, community and love. So not only if we want to be the kind of church that Jesus would have us be by living his life, which is a life, frankly, of love, which always gets the first word. The reason we do this primarily is because this is what Jesus would have us do. But on top of that, we're very blessed. Because at this time, postmodernism, if you want to reach out and offer an apologetic or a witness then loving people is really the ticket. It is not very hard. And all that I mean by giving a witness, I don't mean you sit next to someone on the bus and say, do you know Jesus? That may work, but it may not work all the time. What I mean is you confront people in a gospel sort of way, and you size them up, and you see what Jesus 
specifically they need. And then you deliver that Jesus in such a way that he becomes irresistible to them. That's the great thing about Jesus. He doesn't just address one need. Jesus is the answer to every problem you could ever imagine. Plus, you actually can't imagine everything that Jesus can address. So all that you need to do, you have all the goods. You're one flesh with Jesus. It's not you who's doing it, it's Jesus who's doing it. All you do is size up a person and say, what Jesus is it that they need? They're lonely and they're unloved. I've got a Jesus for that. The one who loves and the one who then forms community. Okay? And that is a very beautiful thing. Because it's not you who is doing it. It is Jesus who is the beautiful one who is doing it. That relationship is defined by beauty because it's defined first and foremost by the person of Christ. That's to appease everyone who's thinking, what does this have to do with beauty? Okay? This is all about beauty. Any questions so far? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very good question. It's not fair. The question is, does the vertical relationship for which we pray between us and the Godhead, doesn't that also involve community? Yes, it does. Um, God is community. He is. He doesn't have community. He is community, which is why Peterson's book, uh, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places, is so good. Because at the very beginning, he begins by saying, let's get involved in the community of the Trinity, in the country of the Trinity. So, all of, so the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one that is defined by community. And what they do is they bring you into that community, which is why the icon on the back altar, it's not there now, I don't think, not there now, of the three angels. Do you remember that? There's the three angels sitting at table, This is from Genesis, where Abraham comes and he actually eats with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They sit down at table. They have a a meal together. The great thing about that icon is the front seat is open. There are four seats at the table. Two on the side and one in the front and the back. In that icon, three seats are filled, but one is open. That seat is for you. That's what it's all about. They say we have perfect community and love. Why don't you come have some fun? So the Holy Supper does that because he puts the entire Godhead into you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit into your flesh. Boom. The minute that happens, community is restored. All sin is, is broken community. When you sin, you break community. With your fellow Christians and with God himself. So the Holy Supper not only forgives your sins, but wrapped up in forgiveness is the restoration of community. The question is, does he look at us person to person, or does he look at us as community? And I would say those two things are one and the same. He certainly sees you as you are. I mean, you're not, um, 
Yeah, you can't, you can't hide from the Lord. He doesn't just say, there's that unknown person that I think sinned last week, but thank God I forgave her. Now, if I could just figure out her name. Okay? At the same time, he always sees you in relationship. For you not to be in relationship is for you not to be a Christian. So he always sees you in relationship with someone else, with himself and with everyone else in this place. Because you eat the exact same food and drink the same drink. And it's not just like, hey, isn't this great? Let's go up and have a party up there and sit down and maybe I'll like you next week. It is a concrete, tangible joining. You are joined to this person over here in a fleshly way. Which means that when this person over here suffers, or when they're sick, or when they're caught in sin, you are as well. Not because you've done it, but because as Christian and in community, you can't help but bear those burdens. So yeah, the Holy Supper strengthens you in community this way, which is primarily defined by faith, faith toward thee, and community this way, which is primarily defined by love. And that's the way it is with Jesus. Jesus is in relationship with his father because he's a faithful son. He's the opposite of the prodigal. But he's in relationship to everyone else, primarily by love. Why does he know you? Because he loves you. Okay, does that help? Okay. By the way, I think the Holy Supper is helping my cold. I've been twice in the past week. Three times. That's a great test. Oh, yes, go ahead. Yes, I can hear you. Right? Well, we could we would hope that everyone was. We let the Lord sort all that out. No, I do understand what you're saying. Can I say a couple things? Okay, those are very, those, you have got a couple questions there, which are both very good. One, I mean, you hinted at almost, I keep falling off the horse, is there a time when the Lord says enough with you? Okay? There, is there a time when the Lord finally said, you said I keep falling off the horse, there's got to be... What do you mean by discerning? So I just 
Judging who? Um, other religions, other, not other religions, but, you know, like other citizens. Yes, right. Yes. Okay, good. I didn't know what you meant by discernment. Um, well, here's the first thing. I, I understand. That's very charitable. That's good. First thing is this. Uh, the Lord has baptized your brain. Which is why when people say, this is always, it's always been very striking to me. Um, I'm just searching for the Lord's will. Or, um, I mean, play it out to its extreme. I want to buy a new car, and I wonder what kind I should buy. Maybe the Lord knows. You know, at a certain point, if you can't find it in the Lord's name, you eventually have to say, I've got a brain. I can figure this out. So part of having a baptized brain is that you're able to say about other denominations or other religions, shouldn't say other denominations, other religions, boy, that's not right or that's not best or, boy, I'm, I'm, I'm smarter than that. I would never get involved in that sort of thing. Um, and so there is, a, there is a boundary with the Lord. I mean, in, in Eden, there is a boundary. Don't eat from that tree. But you can either have that as law or you can have that as gospel. To have that as law is to say, why would God set up such, a, such an earth where he says, uh, you can't do that, you can't do that, you can do that, don't get a part of that religion or you're going to hell, do be a part of this religion or you're going to heaven. And then at the same time, he says he's complete love. That's the wrong question. The right question is, who is Jesus? What has he said? What has he done? And who has he called me to be? And that relationship is defined primarily by love. There are boundaries. Don't go to that tree. Or, can I finish? Let me, let me finish. Let me finish. So you can have that however you would like. But part of living within the boundaries in a gospel sort of way is to be smart enough to say, that's not for me and that is for me. Which takes discernment. That's part of living within the gifts. That's part of living within Eden. It would have been so great if Adam and Eve would have said, you know, that tree's not for us and we probably shouldn't eat from it. That would have been best. But your life is a constant life of falling off the horse, as you said. That's all the Christian life is. That's falling off the horse and getting picked back up. Okay? Do you have any follow-up? Right. Yeah, but, but you, can't ba- you can't base everything you think about the Lord on a text like shake the dust off your feet or even he hardens Pharaoh's heart. Because all those texts, you and I think, are primarily in the way of wrath. How could the Lord ever do that to Pharaoh? How could he tell his apostles, shake the dust off your feet? But as you heard in the collect, he is known chiefly by showing mercy. Those are exceptions He's not going to, I said this on Wednesday night, there are two ways with the Lord, but he doesn't force you down either path. You know what's best. It's the same thing with shake the dust off your feet. He wants you to follow, but if you're not going to have him, eventually he's got to move on to someone else. With Pharaoh, he's not going to force Pharaoh, but eventually he says, Pharaoh, if you want it your way, which as I said, Burger King is the greatest heretic, he's not going to force you down his path. Because then he wouldn't be the free, loving God he's always promised to be. Okay? Thank you. Those are very good questions. Well, we, you know, we've got state basketball next Sunday, so we've got to wrap up today. <laughs> Priorities, of course. So then, 
Love is the ticket. Look at number nine. So love must be then what drives us if we actually believe in making disciples and making them stronger. People are most concerned about being lonely and unloved. That's what they're most concerned about. So in order for people to believe that they are lovable, they must first be loved. You can't ever bring them into the church and say, wow, you're a real lovable person, until you first say, I love you. So listen then to Hopkins. There met in Jesus Christ all things that can make man lovely and lovable. In his body, he was most beautiful. You could pretty much end the class on that. There met in Jesus Christ all things that can make man lovely and lovable. You cannot do it, but Jesus can. In his body, he was most beautiful. And only Jesus can do that. And since he's always been a Lutheran, he always works by means, so he's going to use you. Get ready, hold on to your seats, strap in, because it's time to go to work. By your love, page 5, the lovely one who is Jesus will love the unloved and make them lovely in such a way that they might actually begin to believe that they are lovable. I would never think I was lovable unless Abby loved me. That's just the way it works. You have to be loved before you can believe that you're lovable. By your love, You sitting right here, Jesus will love the unloved and make them lovely in such a way that they might actually begin to believe that they are lovable. And then, this is the best part, once they are loved and believe that they are lovely and lovable, community is the most appealing thing in all of the world. I promise you, once people know that they are loved, that they are lovable, and that they are lovely. They cannot help but join community. And see, right there, with the person of Christ, you've just addressed two of the greatest needs of postmodern human beings, being lonely and being unloved. You love them in such a way that they know they are loved, they are lovable, and they feel lovely, and when they do that, they will not be able to contain themselves They'll want to join community because that's how it goes with Jesus. That's, that's the sole reason you all got in here. On your own, we may not take you. Kidding. Kind of. Because with Jesus, you're not in community. You're not part of St. John. You're not part of his one holy Catholic and apostolic church until you are loved by him. He loves you at the font. This right here is the fountain tangibly, of love. That is an altar of love. That is a pulpit of love. It's a confessional of love. And he loves you, and then he brings you into community. But the great thing about community is, it's all the loved ones. These are all people who have been loved like you. They are all people who felt lonely, felt unlovable, felt unlovely, and felt unloved. But the Lord says, I forgive you, I'm putting myself in you, and in so doing, I am loving you. And once you're loved, you're going to come back. You're going to come back. 
once love has had its way with them, they won't be able to resist community. The Lord loves the unloved, making them lovely and leading them to believe that they are indeed lovable, which then creates an irresistible desire to be with other loved ones. To be with other loved ones. That's what the church is. And in all of that, point 11, there is an extraordinary amount of beauty. Because it is, after all, Christ, the beautiful one, Hopkins, and the one who is beauty, St. Thomas Aquinas, who is doing all of the verbs. This is not about you. It's about Jesus. Thankfully, thankfully, you get to be the means by which he works. You are, in a very real sense, the water at the font. You're, in a very real sense, the same thing as bread and wine at the altar. You are, in a very real sense, the words that proceed from the mouth of a pastor. Because all those things are ordinary things that the Lord transforms. Holy water, body and blood, sacred words that bear the word himself, and damned sinners who are forgiven of all their sins and have Jesus inside their body. And by those means, he seeks to transform the world. So he can't do that unless he uses you. And that brings us all the way back to the beginning, because that takes mystical union. It takes Jesus inside of you. That's what he's about to do. And frankly, it doesn't get much more beautiful than that. Any questions? Yeah. That's a very good question. The question really is, how is, your, how is your love different than someone who's not a Christian? And how do you go about, sh- or is it different? And how do you go about sharing that different love if it is different? I would argue that it is different love. Because the love of Oprah, as far as I know, doesn't flow from the person of Christ residing within her flesh. Yeah. Yes, right. Yeah. Well, the love of the love of a, the love of someone who's not a Christian is but a sad reflection of the Lord's love. It's not it's not the Lord's love in the same way that it is from you. Your love is Christological love. Your love is the love that comes in the incarnate Son coming in Mary's womb. 
That's different love than what a pagan sees in creation. That's different love. Yes, it's the same love that does that, but his love far exceeds his creation. Peterson on Friday said, creation is not the Lord's last great act. It's better than that because he actually sends his son into the flesh. And that son doesn't cease to exist. He exists within you. So that love is different. Now the question is, how do you share that love in a, uh, well, in a non-cheesy way? And as I say to all these kids at River Forest who are trying to figure out how to be great apologists of the Christian faith, just be normal. Just be normal. It doesn't, it's, doesn't take, it doesn't take someone with a PhD in apologetics to be an apologist. It doesn't take someone with a PhD in love to love. Just be normal. And that means live the life that Christ has called you to live. And as Jesus says, by your good deeds, they will glorify your Father in heaven. Just be normal. I always use the example of sitting next to someone on the bus and saying, do you know Jesus? That may work, but that's not, that's not normal behavior usually. Usually. To be normal is to work faithfully, to love your family, to come to the altar every week, to go to confession, to have your kids baptized. That's living the faithful life, and by that, people will see your good deeds, they will see your love and the way you love others, uh, and they'll want in on that. Okay? This is not like, it's not like, uh, you know, um, it's, this is not magic. Like, just put this formula together and I promise the church will grow. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, this is the kind of church that Jesus wants, and he's promised that if you do this, disciples are made. That's what he said. That's what he wants, because that's who he is. He is always out to make disciples and make them stronger, and so you are as well. Yeah. Because you have something more to offer. Oprah can't, Oprah can't give him forgiveness in the same way that you can. She can't give him body and blood. She can't have their kids baptized. She can't hear their confession. It doesn't mean she doesn't love. But your love is so much greater than the love of any non-Christian. Because it's not you, it's Jesus himself. Your love is Jesus. What else? Anything else? We do have to go to church. <laughs> well, and it's and it's utterly self-centered. Yeah. Oprah keeps score, you don't. Which is, gets back to the first point. We, I won't start next, point, next week on point one, which, if you're keeping score at home, is utterly in the way of the law. Because next week we'll have a basketball tournament. Uh, anyways, thank you so much. Uh, let's close in the Lord's Prayer and we'll head on out. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, 
as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.